You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. I'm very, very pleased to have Anna Merlin with us here tonight. This is a book that was actually made for City Lights. Uh, In ever so many ways, uh, Anna is a journalist specializing in politics, crime, religion, subcultures, and women's lives. Uh, She's currently a reporter for the Special Projects Desk uh, of the Investigative Division of Gizmodo Media Group, but not for long. She'll be joining Vice very, very soon. She's also been a staff writer at The Village Voice as well as The Dallas Observer. So as I said, tonight we're celebrating Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists, and their surprising rise to power. Uh, It is published by Metropolitan Books. This is her first book, and we're really excited to have you. Welcome to City Lights. Hey, guys. I'm not just up here looking at my phone. I have notes. It would be very funny if I was just scrolling Twitter. It would be sort of in keeping. Thank you all so much for spending your afternoon this way. You must be a bunch of real weirdos to spend a bunch of time with this book. I say that knowing most of you and knowing that you're all huge weirdos. Um, So I'm going to, the order of events here is I'm going to tell you a little bit about why I wrote the book and what's in it. I'm going to read to you from a kind of a weird chapter, actually, one that I don't usually read that I decided would be fitting for y'all. And then um, we'll do a Q&A and you can tell me who you think killed JFK, because that's (laughs) what tends to happen at these things. Um, Can everybody hear me? We good? Great. Okay. If I'm talking too fast, will somebody in the back just gesture wildly? Thank you. So um, the reporting for this book started in January 2016 when I went on a cruise for conspiracy theorists um, that I wrote about for Jezebel, the feminist website. Um, So this was obviously when the presidential elections were well underway, the interminable presidential elections, and everyone that I sailed with was from a different conspiracy subculture. We had UFO folks, we had anti-vaccine folks, we had people who were very interested in telling me about Hillary Clinton being a lizard person, but the one thing that united them pretty much to a person was that they were very excited about Donald Trump, even the left-leaning among them because they saw him as someone who was outside of the political system, as a truth teller in a style that they understood, and because they thought that he would blow up the political system. Not that he would save it, because they saw it as beyond saving, but that he would destroy it, and not a moment too soon. Um, And so I came back from that cruise. Uh, Two of the people, three of the people who I was on board with are now in federal prison, actually, uh, interestingly. Um, And I, I got to thinking about disaffection and paranoia and the ways that uh, paranoia about the government is really quite reasonable, isn't it? Like, we're in San Francisco. We're in the place where there was CIA-backed brothels for the purpose of having sex workers give LSD to their clients to see what happened, right? Um, Things that would sound completely unbelievable but did actually happen. The FBI's harassment of people in the civil rights movement the FBI's harassment today of people involved in the Standing Rock Water Protector Movement, we know that the federal government behaves in ways that are unconscionable. But before World War I, there were virtually no conspiracy theories about the federal government. There were conspiracy theories about outsiders, whether it was Jews, communists, anarchists, masons, ordinary people were worried about outsiders. So it was a form of conspiracy that was inflected with xenophobia, with anti-Semitism, which also obviously goes back to the Middle Ages. Um, And what that tells us is that paranoia is personally compelling and it's politically effective even when it's not based in anything, which 
racially and ethnically based conspiracy theories are not, but they work. They work for people individually because they give someone to blame, you know, they give you someone to blame for your personal misfortunes and they give politicians a group of people or many groups of people to demonize, to take attention off whatever it is the federal government is doing or the ways that it's failing its citizens. So I got to thinking in the course of writing this book about white supremacists because white supremacists mute, uh, fuse ancient conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories from the Middle Ages with modern day suspicion and paranoia. So at some point while I was working on the book, I realized that I was going to have to go to a white supremacist rally and talk to them about their beliefs and their specific conspiracy theories. Um, because white supremacists use conspiracy theories in a really unique way. They very much play on this sense of victimization and endangerment that is central to a lot of conspiracy thinking, but they do it for you know, the, the white population of this country who are not, in fact, particularly endangered or disaffected, but they have nonetheless managed to persuade people that they are facing a grave existential threat and sort of get people to on their side that way. And we're seeing a lot of that, especially right now. We are seeing a recurrence of white supremacist movements like never, not like, not like never before, but the last time this happened was really probably with the rise of the second Ku Klux Klan. There hasn't been anything like this in a while. And so obviously the most central white supremacist conspiracy theory is that a vast Jewish global order is engaged in the ethnic cleansing of white people. But there's also a secondary thing, which you might have been hearing about recently, called the Great Replacement Theory. The idea that Muslims or Latinx people or somebody from outside the country is coming in to replace the white majority. Here's the thing. That is also very close to what the political mainstream is talking about right now. People like Stephen Miller, who are White House advisors, are espousing versions of this on Fox News. We have people like Tucker Carlson espousing versions of this, which gets at another point, which is that conspiracy theories often are a contorted and exaggerated sense um, version of what is happening in the political mainstream. So I am going to read a little bit from this white supremacist chapter. And actually, something interesting is happening right now, which is that two of the other journalists who were at the white supremacist rally also covering it are in this room. So while I'm reading, uh, you should try to guess who they are. Don't give yourselves away. Uh, and if you guess correctly, I'll give you a prize. I don't know what it is. Whatever's in my purse, probably antacids. Um, and uh, thank you all for coming. All right. The white majority are fed up with all of these lying, cheating, thieving, warmongering, child molesting, political pimps and whores, Art Jones roared, of this corrupt and decadent two-party, Jew-party, queer-party system. He was gesturing wildly, waving liver-spotted hands. His tie quivered at his throat, bedecked with a two-headed enamel pin, an American flag, and a red one with a black swastika fused together. It was a glorious, soft, late April evening in 2017, and a coalition of white supremacists were gathered high in the green, lush foothills of southeastern Kentucky. Their meeting place was a grassy, lumpen field on private land, overtaken with trucks and dotted with a few tents and a duo of porta-potties. A very pale, very male crowd was lingering among the cars as the sun set, laughing and smoking. A guy who looked barely out of his teens bounced by, wearing a t-shirt for the Daily Stormer, a website popular with neo-Nazi internet trolls. A bald man with a neat professorial beard and round silver glasses stopped in front of me and the photographer I was traveling with. Do y'all have any unscented lotion, he inquired, gesturing at the new tattoo on his leg, scabbed over and looking itchy. We didn't. But I made a show of looking in my purse anyway, to be friendly, I guess. 
The purpose of the evening, after all, was to make new friends, to try to bring together disparate racist groups into a harmonious whole, to denounce the vicious Jewish cabal enslaving the country and the world, and to prepare for possible war the following day. For Matthew Heimbach, this meeting of the different groups was a moment he'd been waiting for his whole young life. Heimbach was the founder and most recognizable face of the Traditionalist Worker Party, the TWP, and at the moment we met in Kentucky, he was busy capitalizing on two things, increasingly open rage and disaffection from white voters and Donald Trump's shameless pandering to those feelings a few months into his presidency. The TWP has been described by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a white nationalist group that advocates for racially pure nations and communities and blames Jews for many of the world's problems. Put more simply, the TWP was Heimbach's baby, the conduit for all his white nationalist ambitions. Personally, I couldn't help thinking of Heimbach and his cadre as the social justice racists. At the time of the rally, Heimbach was barely 25, chubby and beaming, with a beard creeping up his face and down his neck. He lived in a trailer in Indiana with a wife, a baby son, and another one on the way. He often mentioned his family when he was getting floridly poetic about his determination to organize in defense of the downtrodden white man. Heimbach's focus on his family would seem quite ironic in a little over a year when he was humiliated and the TWP fell apart after it was revealed that he had an affair with the wife of his father-in-law, Matthew Parrott, who was the co-founder of the TWP. Meanwhile, though, in Kentucky, his popularity was at its peak due to his affable demeanor, his ability to forge alliances, and his surprising set of policy positions. Heimbach's TWP was against climate change and supported better drinking water and health care in poor, heavily white regions of the country. He talked a lot about Appalachian children's teeth and the safety net that failed their parents. The TWP fulminated against mass immigration and promised that under the glorious white ethno state they hoped to build, only, quote, white Caucasians who are descendants of indigenous Europeans would be allowed to immigrate and would, moreover, have to assimilate to what they called the dominant culture for the sake of national unity. Slightly more quietly, Heimbach also wanted to see white supremacist groups organize in a concerted way against their common enemy, world Jewry, which was the purpose of the evening in Kentucky the rebranding and relaunch of a white nationalist coalition uniting several groups together, the TWP, the National Socialist Movement, Vanguard America, and the League of the South. These groups together were to be called the Nationalist Front. This was, in fact, their second try at forming such a coalition. The first was launched by the National Socialist Movement in Georgia in 2016 and called the Aryan Nationalist Alliance. The TWP joined several months later, but the coalition decided to rebrand around November 2016 with the Southern Poverty Law Center speculating that the National Socialist Movement was at Heimbach's encouragement trying to lightly veil their appreciation for Hitler. Um, in early 2017, the TWP announced it would hold a rally and a conference for those white nationalist groups near Pikeville, Kentucky, a small town in a region that was hard hit by the collapse of the coal industry. Between 2010 and 2015, the county lost 5% of its population driven elsewhere to look for work. Pike County is an overwhelmingly white area and about 80% of its registered voters went for Trump. We didn't vote for Trump because we're racist, Chase Goodman explained to me, who's lived in Pikeville most of his life. We just want our fucking coal jobs back. Heimbach hoped to tap into the thick, ropey veins of anger and despair over those lost jobs. He was also hoping to be there when anger turned against the new president. Just before the rally, he told me that he felt the common man's inevitable disappointment with Trump would work to his advantage. I knew he wasn't one of us, he said. I never thought he was a closet white nationalist. I was just hoping he would buy us more time and further polarize politics, which he has done. In time, Heimbach said, the white working class would reject Trump and the Republican Party more generally. 
They'll lose any hope they had in conservatism, he told me. They're not going to become Democrats. And if you like Trumpism, maybe fascism is something you'll like. Where else can they go? The conference portion of the event was held on private land after the neo-Nazis were unable to get a permit to hold it in a state park. To get there, we joined a convo of cars proceeding out of a Walmart, uh, Walmart parking lot in the town of Whitesburg. Whitesburg. A few young guys in black t-shirts wandered the lot carrying semi-automatic rifles looking chipper. From Whitesburg, the convoy followed a narrow winding road through a landscape dotted with billboards for personal injury attorneys, the army, organ donation. As the towns got smaller, the billboards gave way to campaign signs tacked onto trees. Gibson for constable, one announced, and another, Trump digs coal. The towns themselves turned into vanishingly tiny pinpoints with alluring names, Rowdy, Dwarf, and finally, Democrat, marked by a hand-lettered sign, permanent marker on plywood, stuck with an American flag in the corner. Trees crowded the road. Little girls played ball in the front yard of a house with a saggy wooden porch cluttered with stuff. They waved sweetly at the convoy of cars. The white supremacist waved back. The slimiest, dankest pool of the overlapping conspiracy ponds is extremism, and particularly in the United States, white supremacist-based hatred. Hate groups all over the world are fueled by terrified, wild conjectures about the people they hate, from globalist Jew bankers pulling the global strings to Islamists spreading Sharia law across America. One Klan group, the original Knights of America, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, that is their full name, posts dire warnings on its website about secret plots of moderate Muslims. The common core curriculum is, they advise, an attempt to promote Islamic supremacism in schools. Supermarkets are even selling halal meat without noting that it's halal. Tricking non-Muslims into eating halal meat is part of some other dreadful plot. For many of these groups, however, it is the Jews above all who are the hidden rotten core of every evil, the most powerful foe, the hook nose behind everything wrong in America. There are detours. White supremacists also make the vilest claims against black people and Latinx people. But after many years and new flavors of hatred, the extremists have main, maintained one steady and consistent focus. Conspiracy theories about Jews are some of the oldest in history. Depending on who you talk to, Jews have poisoned wells, stolen children for blood rituals, or form a many-headed hydra running the world's governments and financial systems. Their power is legendary. The Jew never sleeps, says Brian Culpepper of the National Socialist Movement. He works 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to eradicate us. The history of racist extremism in America is heavily larded with conspiracy theorism. Neo-Nazism, of course, is premised on secret Jewish control, as well as a generous dose of Holocaust denial. And the Christian identity movement is a broad group who believe that uh, the con rely on the concept that only European whites are part of the lost tribes of Israel, while Jews and non-whites are mud people plotting to enslave the world. Christian identity followers became some of the earliest sovereign citizens, an even larger group who believed that the federal government is illegitimate and they shouldn't be subject to its laws or taxes. That's just one aspect of American hatred, which is a much longer, blood-drenched book. We've never been free from hate groups, whether it's the Klan's emergence just after the Civil War, its resurgence during the 1920s, or the birth in the early 1970s of the frequently racist, far-right militia movement, beginning with the loosely organized Posse Comitatus. A big preoccupation for conspiracy theorists on the far right is imminent one world government, uh, government takeover, an army of shock troops who plan to put the country over, under the savage thumb of tyrannical control. 
the anti-globalization movement on the so-called far left or radical left isn't really the same. Anarchist demonstrators in Seattle, for instance, in 1999, who were protesting the World Trade Organization, weren't concerned with one world government so much as they were concerned with the human rights and environmental issues they saw as an endemic part of corporate-backed globalization. But right-wing militia groups took the one world government fear to particular lengths. They identified the new world order as the particular threat of the 1990s and were thrown into a particular tizzy about it when they heard George H.W. George Bush echo the term in a speech. Other more Nazi-oriented folks referred to the same threat as the Zionist-occupied government, the Zog, a term that's been kicking around since the mid-1970s. And vanquishing the Zog is a central theme in The Turner Diaries, a 1978 novel by William Luther Pierce, founder of the National Alliance of White Supremacist Group. The novel centers on the Order, a cell of brave white men who orchestrate a violent guerrilla war against the system, a Jewish-controlled government that has snatched everyone's guns and made it a hate crime for white people to defend themselves against the savage hordes. Taking its name from the Turner Diaries, an actual group called the Order also borrowed its most gruesome tactics, assassinating a Jewish radio host named Allen Berg in 1984 for the crime of mocking them on air. Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh was also a big fan of the book. He justified his attack by calling it a counterstrike in a war against an oppressive government system. Photocopies of pages from the Turner Diaries were found in the car driven by McVeigh just after the attack. That evening in the field in Kentucky, the unapologetic, ungenteel variant of hatred was blasted at top volume by Art Jones, the elderly anti-Semite from Illinois with a surprisingly strong set of lungs. Now, President Trump, he has surrounded himself with hordes of Jews, he yelled, not entirely accurately, including a Jew in his own family. His audience, seated at long wooden tables under a white tent, muttered in disgusted agreement, save for two little girls who were obliviously coloring. I'm sorry I voted for this son of a bitch, he shouted some more. A woman bounced a fretful baby. A squat little man in a tan shirt and a swastika armband poked around behind Jones at the lectern looking for another beer. Ostensibly, poor whites from Kentucky were the reason the racists had trekked out to Pikeville. But the actual townspeople of Pikeville weren't present at the gathering up in Democrat. A local man donated his land for the white nationalists to use. His sympathies were unclear, but almost every one of the attendees was from out of state. The forces of whiteness were a varied bunch. Some of them were young racists and some of them were slightly older racists. Uh, the National Socialist Movement was there, a neo-Nazi party whose leader, Commander Jeff Scoop, lives in Detroit. The NSM's use of military titles is part of a pretension of military rigor that's common among white supremacist groups. The Global Crusaders Order of the Ku Klux Klan were there, an arm of the KKK who seemed especially young to me. Most of them were from Alabama, skinny, acne-pocked, chicken-necked. A few representatives from the original Knight Riders, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan were behind them, older guys in paramilitary black. One went by the name Sky Soldier and bore an unsettling resemblance to Willie Nelson. He shyly handed me his card when I asked for an interview. Soldiers of God, it read, militant Christians since 1118 AD. <laughs> Vanguard America was there too, a young hipster looking white nationalist group that seemed to make everyone else a bit uncomfortable, although its members' sentiments were indistinguishable from the party line. A separate country for whites, Muslims out, beware the Jew. Know your enemy, one of their flyers read over a sagging eyeless visage of George Soros wearing a red Star of David on his lapel. He knows you. And Brian Sonny Thomas was there, a white nationalist from Ohio with a graying mullet and a love for classic rock. He made headlines in 2010 for tweeting about wanting to shoot Latinx people. Illegals everywhere today. So many specs make me feel like a speck. Grr, where's my gun? Despite having a child with a Latina woman. 
Uh, he ran an online radio show and periodically popped up in the local news for doing things like unfurling Confederate flags during school board meetings, and a state politician got in trouble not long before the conference for appearing on his show to promote a ban on sanctuary cities. I wandered over to Thomas to chat. Are you going to be fair, he demanded. I hope so, I replied. He grinned and lapsed into a near, long near monologue on a variety of subjects. Donald Trump. He's totally surrounded by cucks and Jews, he said, using the derisive supremacist term for a conservative sellout or a weakling of any kind. The president's recent bombing of Syria, an outrage we agreed for different reasons. Venezuela, states' rights, fathers' rights, the gold standard, the Charleston mass shooter Dylan Roof, a false flag attack, Thomas thought, or maybe a victim of MKUltra or similar mind control. Thomas was also concerned about child molestation. Deep within the upper echelons of power, there's a lot of pedophilia, Thomas explained. It's arrogance. These people think they can't be touched. Pizzagate had made inroads here, too, although nobody used that name for it. Thomas blamed most of the world's problems on the globalists, people like CNN founder Ted Turner and Bill Gates, but placed America's moral decline firmly at the feet of the Jews. The whole media is owned by six companies, which are all owned by Jews, he told me, but he could feel a new and encouraging shift. I can talk to people like you at a gas pump, and we're not talking in hushed tones, you know? Communication is the first step. I'm Jewish, I told him. His face registered several different shades of polite surprise. That's fine, he said at last, reassuringly. You might think I'm full of shit, and that's fine. Thank you, guys. Does anybody want to talk about Nazis or who killed JFK? Questions, <laughs> comments? Hi. My question is, um, Nazis don't make themselves <clears throat> very visible in my life. No. How did you find them? How did I find them? Um, so the Daily Stormer, the website that I mentioned at the beginning of the piece, is actually one of the most read white supremacist websites in the world, and it has more traffic than some extremely mainstream websites in the United States. So I was able to track what they were planning to do, mostly using the Daily Stormer. But this was also a period of time before these people were kicked off Twitter and other social media services. They were making their organizing efforts really well known because they wanted journalists there. They wanted it to be covered. So our challenge as journalists actually was to go and cover it in a way that didn't give them too much air for their ideas. There were a bunch of documentary crews there who were sort of filming them uncritically in a way that was uh, pretty distressing. None of those pieces have come out yet. Yeah? A little question. Um, mm -hmm. When I do meet right-wingers, sure. it seems like you can find some reasonable common ground. They back off of the craziness mm -hmm. once they see you and look you in the eye. Do you have that experience also? I'm also Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. So sure. it's like they won't, they won't say crazy stuff to your face. People say crazy stuff to my face. Um, <laughs> I, I find that generally people um, in one-on-one -on -one conversations with other people they perceive to be white are pretty uh, interested in finding some kind of common ground as soon as they find out you are Jewish or as soon as they find out that you are a person of color, especially. Uh, your experience is very different. Um, but it's also worth noting that like the, all the neo-Nazis and you know outright racists advocating for white genocide that I've ever interviewed want to convince me, a Jewish woman, that we have something in common, even though they want to ethnically cleanse me. <laughs> they want me either dead or back in Israel, which I'm not. I'm not from there. I've never been there. Wait, no, I have been there. Sorry. But um, so the the point. I'm trying to make is that a lot of these people can put on a really good face of seeming reasonable. Richard Spencer um, of the NPI is very, very good at that, and he got very famous that way. It doesn't mean that they have reasonable policy positions behind closed doors, I would say. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking of um, Be Belfast, Northern Ireland, mm. and the um, you know the public inside the neighborhoods sure. are very uh, sympathetic to others who are victims of colonialism and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So they started running up Palestinian flags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in the Unionist loyalist neighborhoods, mm -hmm. I don't. You know, you kind of wondered, did they really understand what was going on? Right. And they started running up Israeli flags. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I know. Do, do any of these, because these Nazi white neo-Nazi mm -hmm. white supremacists hate Jews, sure. do, they, do they profess any sympathy for uh, Palestinians? Yes. And, and mm -hmm. the Palestinians support for the Hong Kong protesters because they see it as a nationalist movement. And there's a lot of weird overlap like that that goes on lately. There's a lot of sort of um, cross-breeding of various kinds because people are looking for, you know, short-term alliances wherever they can find them, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, when you, yeah, when you speak of the, you know, the Hong Kong protests, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, work for, I work with KPFA on the Community Advisory Board. Yeah. I, I also uh, have a, you know, you know, they, they, have a sh they have a show called Flashpoints. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Dennis Bergstein. Yeah, uh -huh. I think I've been you know, on it. They, they, they had a thing, it was him, it was John Pilger, you know, basically stipulated that, uh, that, uh, that, this is, that, that, that the Hong Kong protest in itself might be a work of the, you know, of the National Endowment for Democracy. But sure. My, my, what, what do you it's think a Soros-backed. Well, no, I, I, but, but, right. but, but, but the thing is, uh, you know, I mean, what what is it? Uh, you know, you know that. Uh, you know, where is you know? Uh, I mean, if if you don't think that 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 is that, it actually is some you know some sort of uh, thing that we should nonetheless be troubled uh. by with it in terms of uh, because the thing is they've also been known to uh, what Trump's supported you know, as well. So the so the thing is, you know, I, I know I'm coming. And with two completely different mm -hmm. stories, but they do intertwine with each other. So I'm just wondering. Yeah. If it's not either one of them. What I say, then what do you think? Well, you're making a really interesting point. Yeah, you're making a really interesting point. Are, are what? Is it? Is it? Uh, is this? Are they? Do you think that the United States is trying to create a, an economic breach, a beach front to, uh, to uh, you know, take over China? Whether it's whether uh. it's the two things that I stipulate to you, right. or do you think it's something else? So. Pretty much every popular uprising, whether it's the Arab Spring, whether it's the Hong Kong protests, whether it was the, the civil rights movement, which obviously was a more organized uh, uh, movement, is accused of being backed by someone else, right? Being backed by the American government, being backed by George Soros, being backed by the globalist, uh, I, I didn't, whatever. I didn't think it was George Soros. No, I mean, sure, I, I still, why not? I, I, I still you know, you know, believe that, uh, that whatever, you know, what, you know, whatever is this national right. for democracy or or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever it is that is that is you know the the deep state driving force. It's like you know we're always battling for you know, for definition. We're trying to do it, and people try to do it in a way you know KPFA. Right. You know. Uh, I think that suspicion. Right. Know, I think that suspicion is a. Especially, it's been affecting their programming. Quite sure. Yeah, I think that suspicion is a reflection of our unease with the idea that there is some kind of deep state or permanent state that is operating at a level that we can't see, and that makes it so that any of our um, sort of efforts towards promoting democracy either globally or uh, here at home w will not succeed because there is some other group working in secret against us, which is a really understandable fear and paranoia and concern. 
Um, but I don't know, especially in the case of the Hong Kong protests, that we have any information to indicate that that's true. Yeah. But yeah. I understand why people why people think that. Well, do you think you know, the last thing? I'm sorry. Do you think that there is an actual safe harbor where people can actually meet in, you know, in, a, in a civil way without without you know this you know this horrific you know you know, thing, you know people pointing their you know, fingers at each other? Because that's what I you know actually strive to do. I know, hope so. Like, I'm you know. I'm, a lot of times, I, I consider myself you know, more of a diplomat than than, than, than political, and, and mm -hmm. I think that diplomacy is something that uh, you know, that, that, that that the left you know, really needs. Yeah, you know, thank you for that. Yeah, Lois. A little bit of a follow-up question for that. So, um, this past year has been a lot. Yeah. Uh, in so many ways. It sure and has. Two particular <laughs> moments where you were like um, most moments that you're like after is a victory against conspiracy. Here's like the temperature you're turning down. Mm. Right, right. Um, so one thing that we have seen this year that we can argue about still actually is individual people have been really effectively deplatformed, and the main one is Alex Jones. Alex Jones is not on virtually any social network anymore. Pretty much every social network has decided that he is not someone that they want to support with their platforms, and his audience is shrinking. We know this for a lot of reasons. We know this because he's part of a multi-level marketing scheme now called Jeunesse, uh, which indicates that he's pretty hard up for money. And I personally know it because he got very mad at me uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and devoted like 30 minutes of his show to yelling uh, in front of a picture of my face and a picture of the book. Um, and I didn't notice for like a day and a half. Usually when somebody does that, when somebody with any kind of following does that, I, I feel it right away because I start getting death threats or people call my dad or like something happens that is bad. Um, I did not realize, I knew that somebody somewhere was saying something shitty. I didn't realize it was Alex Jones for a very long time because he has been so effectively deplatformed that his videos are hard to find. So by the time I was like, maybe that was Alex Jones and went and looked for it, I realized, oh, his audience has shrunk to the point where, you know, and this is the true also of other far right actors, people like Milo Yiannopoulos, who is broke and, you know, selling his giant gold paintings of himself. Uh -huh. This is another sort of far right back actor, bad actor. Um, the thing that makes me most pessimistic is the fact that every single mass shooting or mass casualty event in the United States that is covered heavily by the media is subject to accusations that it was a staged event uh, populated by crisis actors, staged by the federal government. And the families who are impacted by these events who lose their loved ones are then usually subject to years of harassment, uh, doxing, threats. Um, people like Lenny Posner, who was the father of the youngest kid who died at Sandy Hook, and who's devoted pretty much his entire life since then to fighting conspiracy theories about his son and these other children who died, has had to move a bunch of times. Um, you know, is like his life will never be the same, I don't think. And so that is something that uh, really makes me sort of furious, the fact that we have a country that is so unsafe that this happens routinely and that then these people are faced with this outrageous secondary tragedy of years of harassment and threats and, and lies about their loved ones. Yeah. Wait, I forgot to ask, who do we think are the other journalists in the room who were in Kentucky? Any thoughts? Uh, do you guys want to show yourselves who was in Kentucky? That's Lois. That's Todd. We're, we're all alive. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Todd is a photographer and photojournalist, and Lois uh, is a journalist for The Guardian who focuses on guns. So I imagine that you have had some moments this year where you have felt extremely hopeless and some moments this year where you have felt extremely oh, hopeless. Oh, yeah, no, that's I don't have it. I don't have anything else. <laughs> yeah. What? New Zealand banned guns. New Zealand banned guns. We could all move to New Zealand. Other questions? Yeah. Since finishing the book, have you had thoughts about how language is used to control consciousness and, you know, the way that sometimes it's not even a conspiracy, yeah. but just the way that we use language and become accustomed to it. It's like an invisible elephant in a room, and yet yeah. we're part of it. We are. We are. That's a really great question because at some level, all of our ideas, all of our political discourse especially has a habit of slipping into sort of like these pre, pre-trodden roads that we, we don't realize that we're going down. And so it can be really hard, yeah, to find new language to talk about these things, especially to talk about these things in a way that doesn't alienate, you know, the, the other side. Um, I also had the experience of, you know, when I use the word conspiracy theory, or the phrase conspiracy theory, there's some population of people who think that I am being cruel to them, that I am, you know, automatically backed by big pharma, the federal government, you know. And so, I've, yeah, I've faced some challenges with language where I try to talk to people who have radically different beliefs than me in a way that hopefully will not make them shut down, you know, that will hopefully engender a discussion that is productive but also does not feature me humoring their most hateful ideas. Yeah. So at the beginning, you mentioned um, how, with our current political our statement, you know, yeah. as we are, uh, people like Fox News, uh, outlets like Fox News, yeah. are kind of espousing these conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Um, you also talked about Seth Rich in the yeah. book, and yeah. recently a federal judge said that his family can continue with a lawsuit against Fox News. Exactly. Uh, what do you think is the likelihood of them winning, and uh, yeah. in the future, I mean, yeah. if more outlets like Fox continue to have this kind of blurred line of right. the truth, and Absolutely. I mean, where does journalism go? It's a really good question. Matt is also a journalist. There's a lot of journalists in here. I packed the room. Um, yeah, so Seth Rich was a DNC staffer who was murdered walking home from a bar during the 2016 elections. He was immediately subject to a bunch of conspiracy theories that he'd been murdered by Hillary Clinton because he was about to expose her dirty schemes or that he had been murdered by you know, some other uh, dark actor for trying to expose something within the DNC, some corruption within the DNC. And Fox News ran with this narrative. They loved it. They promoted it every day. Sean Hannity especially was extremely enlivened by it. And so his family did what seemed reasonable to me at some point and sued for defamation. Um, and so they, yeah, their, their first case was thrown out, but the appeals court has ruled that it can continue. Um, and this is just one of a number of lawsuits that has recently uh, been filed against people making what to me, just as a journalist, as someone who's been unfairly sued for defamation because I'm a journalist, um, plainly seem like defamatory statements just on, on their face. You know, to say, for instance, that Seth Rich's brother was involved in his murder, which is something that some right-wing outlets said, or to say that his family doesn't care about finding his killers because they've been paid off, those are defamatory statements. And so the fact that they were ruled to be not defamatory by a lower court because they were uttered on Fox News puzzled me. Um, and so I will be interested to see where it goes, but I would be surprised if they don't secure some kind of judgment in their favor. Um, there is also now about nine lawsuits against Sandy Hook truthers, um, most of them involving some combination of parents who lost their kids at Sandy Hook. And it has actually made a big difference in the number of people who are willing to say publicly that the kids at Sandy Hook didn't die or that they never existed. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Like, I don't know if that is actually how we want to proceed with civil discourse. If we want to try every statement in court. 
but certainly it is surprising that some of these people weren't sued before you know so i i think that they're in some ways reaping what they sow this year in a way that certainly has surprised a lot of them alex jones is shocked that he's being sued for defamation it never happened before which is amazing thank you for that question yeah you know, i'm following on this uh, subject mm -hmm. Seth, Seth Richard, Hillary Clinton. yeah um i was maybe looking at the other sort of the other side of the political spectrum mm -hmm. um having of course since the spring um, had the release of the Mueller Special Investigation yeah. report um, with the results, you know, of the Russiagate stuff. Right. And the fact that MSNBC, CNN, and every magazine, it seems, from Mother Jones, who had a whole issue, mm -hmm. to the New Republic of the Atlantic, to on and on and on. Yeah. Has, um, and it seems that it came up with pretty thin stuff at the end. The Mueller so, report? Yes. Hmm. I, you know, I mean, regarding Trump's, you know, uh, Trump's direct Trump involvement, sure. Right. Do you think that, as far as a category, categorically, conspiracy mm -hmm. might even address um, this whole, this media, this, this whole, like, millions of uh, articles in the media about uh, connections, you know, Kremlin right. connections, right? Um, Putin being the, you know, uh, going right to the core of. Sure. Of, Western democracy yeah. from being a, an asset or an agent. Even right. David K. Johnson actually he did. said, well, he's an agent of the, of the Kremlin. Sure. So, I mean, who's yeah. responsible? Well, so those are, definitely, those are two different ideas. The Mueller report was yeah. pretty damning in terms of the Russian government was interested in influencing the U.S. elections okay. in Donald Trump's favor. They, yeah, yeah, they engaged in extensive efforts to yeah. do that. They created, the most interesting thing for me was the ways that they used social media mm -hmm. to exploit mm -hmm. existing divisions in American culture, for instance, by creating, you know, pro and anti-vaccine pages, pro and anti-gun pages, and they were really interested in dividing the American public. I thought that was fascinating. But yeah, the, the allegation that Donald Trump is a Putin puppet, that he is a Putin employee, was not, was baseless. There, that, that wasn't there. He's you know, arguably not smart enough to, to do something like that, or organized enough, who knows. So it was interesting for me, you know, as a person on the left, to try to stay within the realm of what I actually knew versus what I felt to be true, because as people in general we are really prone to wanting to make patterns and see connections that fit our pre-existing view of the world and it is some that our brains are wired to do this our brains are wired to find patterns and we are wired to perform what is called motivated reasoning where anything that feeds our view of the world we give more weight to and anything that doesn't feed our view of the world we just i'll put that over there and i'll think about it later it's fine um and so for me to watch for instance msnbc before the Mueller report came out was a really interesting experience in looking at what it looks like when the political subsection that I am part of is disempowered and is falling into paranoia and suspicion. And my last example of that would be that um, before Donald Trump was elected, the far right said that President Obama was not going to leave office, that he was going to declare martial law, was not going to leave office, was going to be president for life. Places like World Net Daily said that all the time. And now I'm hearing uh, people on the left saying the same thing about Trump. And while it is slightly more justifiable to say that because Donald Trump keeps joking about not leaving office, it is still the idea that he's going to declare martial law or cancel the elections is a conspiracy theory that was four years ago being uttered by the other side. So it is interesting to think about the ways that we are all prone to suspicion and paranoia when we feel disempowered and disenfranchised. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi. Another journalist, <laughs> sort of. Former. Former journalist. Good for you. <laughs> 
more of a comment than a question. I love it. <laughs> I love a comment. Uh, actually, uh, my question was, is there any conspiracy or thing that you wish you could have put in the book yeah. cut for time yes. or just research? Thank you for that question. Um, yes, environmental conspiracy theories. They are a huge thing, and they impact our public discourse around climate change, global warming, even natural disasters. And so I have done a little bit of writing since then. I have a story about climate conspiracies coming out pretty soon. But the fact that it's not in the book is something that I actively feel bad about every day. Um, and it's really, really important. And it really is a place to where the furthest reaches of conspiracy and the sort of closer to the center often kind of mirror each other in, in to alarming effects. Because we have a global climate crisis happening right now. And we can't really afford the level of quibbling we're doing about whether or not it is a crisis. And so the fact that conspiracy theorists have been able to exploit any uncertainty at all that people might have is is an emergency. So yeah, that's that's something I wish was in the book and I feel bad about it. Yeah. Hey, another journalist. Yeah. Um, it's a pattern. My question is about journalism. Oh no, <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. It's too late um, we live in a time where a lot of people don't really love journalists, mm. and you... Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Really? <laughs> <laughs> um, Seems fine. And um, you write about many of the people who hate journalists the most, mm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, and have mm -hmm. suffered like pretty brutal consequences for that. Um, I have? You have. I've been okay. I mean, you've been doxxed. Yeah, a bunch of times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Doxing so is when somebody releases your personal information. On the internet. Uh, so I'm curious, like, when you are writing about these topics, how you think about framing things when it's like, not only are you never going to convince any mm -hmm, of the mm -hmm, people mm -hmm. that, like, you know, yeah. could possibly use to be convinced, yeah, but yeah. also, like, you know, it, it's such inherently an antagonistic relationship. Yes. I'm wondering, like, how that feeds into your reporting and writing yeah. process. Yeah. Well, I mean, journalism should be antagonistic, right? Everybody should dislike us. But some people dislike us more than others, for sure. Um, I think that I consider it a worthwhile challenge to try to talk to people who hate me. And I have had, you know, some degree of success in getting people to talk to me, even though, you know, I'm a Jewish journalist who previously lived in New York, you know, the trifecta of terrible things. Um, and some of that is about showing up. Some of that is about being like, you know, I'm here. I'm writing about you. You might as well talk to me because, you know, I'm writing about you anyway. But the other, um, the other piece of that is not just interviewing these people so they can yell at me and call me fake news and tell me that I'm Jewish, which is actually not a surprise to me. I'm aware that I'm Jewish. Um, but it's to look at their networks. It's to look at who Who's funding them? Who's giving them money? Who's publicizing what they're saying? Look at this ecosystem of websites that mirrors each other to promote disinformation. And so as much as I think that it's important to interview these people and understand what they think, I want to understand even more how their ideas spread. And so that has been something that I've tried to be more focused on because otherwise we end up with an army of profiles about Richard Spencer and he's honestly not that interesting. Um, and so like a really good example was the Washington Post earlier this year revealed that a billionaire couple are funding most of the major anti-vaccine efforts in the United States. I had no idea. That's incredible. A lot of these people are being propped up with the help of these single, you know, the single couple who refer to themselves as philanthropists. And I feel like our understanding that is really important, understanding the way that this country functions and the way that wealth can sway public discussion in disastrous ways. And so I hope that, yeah, as much as we try to get in the same room as these people, we also try to understand who's not in the room, who we need to be paying even more attention to. Yeah. Hi, Keegan. I also have a journalist question. 
Oh God. <laughs> is Keegan a journalist? Who thinks who thinks Keegan's also a journalist? <laughs> yeah, everybody. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so you talk about now you still see uh, every mass shooting is met with skepticism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. False flag and uh, anti covering anti-vaxxers is just really loaded thing. That it seems like no matter how you cover it or what you write, you're never going to convince somebody or stop right. the conspiracy theory. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What can we as journalists mm -hmm. uh, cover that in a way that it disarms that, diffuses it, and mm -hmm. prevents these types of conspiracies? Right, so I think a sense of history of where these things came from, where these ideas came from can be really useful because when you see the network that they've traveled down, sometimes they are more legible as lies. The anti-vaccine movement, pretty much the modern anti-vaccine movement sprang from one person, Andrew Wakefield. And so when we talk about Andrew Wakefield's financial motivations to claim a false link between the MMR vaccine and autism, it's not gonna convince his diehard followers, but a lot of reasonable people would say that is a clear financial motivation to make up that lie that his scientific findings have never been replicated ever. Uh, maybe as a reasonable person who is able to look at the weight of the evidence, I will use this set of reporting about Andrew Wakefield to make my choices. Um, I think that it's a really, really hard question. It's something that we as people who cover extremists come up against a lot, you know, is how we, is there a way to disarm them? And the uncomfortable fact and something that we've talked about a lot, Lois, is that at some level, when you cover these people, you do give them more visibility. And it is really hard to not do that. And so um, it's something that I struggle with a lot because I do think that they're worthy of coverage. I think that their ideas are, hold a lot of sway. And so I want to talk about them. But yeah, I would say that like every story we do, right? It's a new struggle over whether this particular racist or racist idea or extremist movement is being covered correctly. I think the wrong way to do it is probably how QAnon has been covered, which is, you know, as soon as a Q poster showed up at a Trump rally, there were explainers in every major newspaper that didn't really explicate the fact that QAnon is a, is a lie. It's not true. It comes from nowhere. But it explained, you know, the conspiracy theory in such great detail that it probably won a lot of these people a lot of new followers. So I don't know. I think there are a lot of wrong ways to do it. I think the right way to do it is uh, sort of harder to nail down every time. It's not a very optimistic answer. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So you had a whole chapter on Pizzagate in uh -huh. the book and um, you know, the claim that there is pedophilia rings and child prostitution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what has been the reaction to the Epstein Right. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. This is Patrick. He designed my book cover. Um, <laughs> thank you, Patrick. Fun fact, the original cover of my book that my publisher wanted to use was Barack Obama's birth certificate. <laughs> and I said, nope, we're not doing that. Uh, wow. Um, so the Pizzagate people are very excited about Jeffrey Epstein. They have not yet decided whether he is alive or dead uh, and who killed him if he is, in fact, dead. Um, but they are, you know, to them, this is confirmation, obviously, that there is a global order of powerful pedophiles. And the thing about covering these movements is I also write a lot about sexual abuse, and I know that there are a lot of powerful people who get away with sexual abuse of women and children. That, that is an absolute fact. What is frustrating about the Pizzagate people is that they are entirely unfocused on Epstein's victims who are out here talking, you know, using tremendous courage to talk about things that happened to them when they were very young. A lot of them feel tremendous guilt because they were groomed for so long. Um, and the Pizzagate people essentially do not react anytime these folks, these women come forward. 
uh, they all they really are interested in is how Bill Clinton is involved or other powerful people, Prince Andrew, the Pope, Bill Gates, whatever. Uh, so it is a really sort of stark demonstration of the ways that conspiracy theories are politically useful and they come to the mainstream at a time when they're politically useful. Jeffrey Epstein has been a has been publicly known to be a pedophile since 2008. Uh, and these folks were not talking about it until pretty much until Epstein was arrested, which is something that I've found really, really frustrating um, and which is it is particularly difficult to see so much cynicism around sexual abuse. For me, I get a little heated. But yeah, they're very excited about it, and I hope sooner or later they'll come to a consensus about whether or not he's dead. Maybe they can have like a symposium and take a straw poll, you know? Yeah. Um, other questions? How are we doing on time? We're good. We're good? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, is there sort of in a broader sense, is there anything we can do in terms of like pedagogy or in terms of? Yeah. Kind of a overall creating a social environment that, that yeah. inoculates against yeah, totally. kind of this, this tendency to run conspiracy theory. So the, the science, the studies that we have say that it is you can persuade someone out of a conspiracy theory if they are a recent convert and if they perceive you to be like them, um, which is a weird sort of fact. So like if I'm trying to explain to a 50-year-old Fox News viewer who's male that like some belief of his is wrong he's probably not going to listen to me but he might listen to another person in his same cohort somebody he views as an equal um so that is a little bit discouraging because obviously the most hardcore conspiracy theorists are people who have been in it for a long time one thing that i do support even though there's limited evidence right now that it works is uh better media literacy education in middle school and high school so at the very least people are able to identify actual fake news sources which can be hard sometimes but we don't actually know yet if that works it's too soon to know i think broadly as a society we should be more concerned about disinformation and misinformation and where they come from especially in the 2020 elections there is undoubtedly going to be a lot of it um i would also say on a personal level we know that if people are less isolated, they are less prone to conspiracy thinking. People who believe in conspiracy theories tend to be economically or socially disaffected or disenfranchised. They tend to feel a, a huge sense of personal pessimism about their own lives. Um, they tend to feel that their personal situation is getting worse instead of better. And a lot of them have weak in-person social networks. So I get a lot of questions about like, what do I do about my Fox News watching dad? And the answer is to take him outside <laughs> and to try to the stronger community ties we have, the stronger ties we have as individuals, the better that it will work to combat some of these things. But the other reason why we have so many conspiracy theories is because we live in a society that is so unjust, where so many people feel disenfranchised by the economic system, the voting system. There is so much uh, racism that manifests itself in so many direct ways like gerrymandering. And so one way to have fewer conspiracy theories that impact us is to have a more just equitable and transparent society. So if we could just do that real quick, then a lot of these things will take care of themselves. Yeah. Joel, did you have a question? Are you going to talk about UFOs? Am I going to talk about UFOs right now? Yeah, let's talk about UFOs. No, I, I actually do have a question. Aliens are real, obviously. The, this is I'm being completely serious. Everyone has kind of a big joking. shot into a journalism question, too, but I'm curious. Another journalist. Uh, former. Uh, reform. You're never I mean, a former journalist. The, this is a thing that has been on top of mind for me for the last couple of years, mm. watching journalism in New York in particular, but do you have any thoughts about why so many journalists are gravitating towards what I consider a type of conspiracy theory, yeah. or at least spiritualism, of mm -hmm. like all of the tarot 
and uh, crystal thinking and new age stuff that's resurgent. Yeah. And a group of people who are supposed to be hyper rational. Uh -huh. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I do. Boy, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, <laughs> so actually, so my, my empathetic way to answer that question, my non-dismissive way to answer that question is that um, we are in a constant search for meaning. We're in a society where fewer and fewer people belong to organized religion. And so the place that is left there, the place where we are trying to figure out our place in the universe, it gets filled with something. And, you know, spiritualism recurs pretty persistently since, you know, the 60s or 70s. It is a thing that comes back up. Um, it is also, when we're talking about things like the tarot or astrology, these are like archetypes, and a lot of people resonate with those on a, on a personal level. Um, do I personally have a lot of patience for it? No. Um, but I, I understand where it comes from, and I understand that um, our search for meaning takes us in a lot of sort of different directions. So, you know, um, this is also something I think a lot about with UFO subculture because UFO folks at their core are convinced that someday extraterrestrial beings will come here and show us a better way to live, that they will reveal technologies to us that we don't know about, zero, you know, anti-aging, zero point energy, um, and that they will show us how to be a better, kinder, more evolved um, planet. And as much as I don't personally think that that's what's going to happen, um, I think that that is a really sort of admirable hope, you know, and it is maybe one point of optimism in a world that is sort of increasingly lacking in it. So, you know, I guess I'll give people hope wherever they find it, even if it's not mine. I mean, do you feel like there's just a human, or human tendency to shove some amount of your worry into some amount of belief no matter what like yeah we all believe in something right i mean if we if we don't then what are we doing how do we continue especially at times like this so i don't know it's it's i understand that a lot of the communities that i cover even if i find them repellent like the anti-vax movement or the crisis actor folks that is their community that is what they have found to give them shape and meaning and purpose to their lives so as much as it disturbs me i also understand why they need it and why they want it, and I try to approach writing about them from a perspective of trying to understand what these what these movements are giving them. Yeah, John Locke, not oh. a journalist, <laughs> not sort a of. Person. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, you're on TV. Yeah. Um, so to quote uh, clear-eyed uh, cynic uh, William Burroughs, a man who's paranoid knows a little of what's going on. Yeah. So with that with that with, with that thought in mind. Mm -hmm. And you've been studying conspiracy theories and people who believe in these conspiracy theories for some time and sure. about it. Yeah. Um, some conspiracies are true, and mm -hmm. some conspiracies, part of the conspiracy, are true. Absolutely. Exaggerated in other senses. Uh -huh. And in your studies and uh, travels over time, how would you break that down? Mm -hmm. and maybe taking a, a like a like a prominent uh, a conspiracy theory. I don't really have one specifically in mind. Right sure. Now, how would you break that down with a prominent? Let's say the pedophile thing. Right. So this is um, a peculiar sort of challenge as Americans, particularly, because as I talked about at the beginning, like a lot of things that sound like paranoid, wild-eyed conspiracy theories turn out to be true. true. <laughs> Watergate is an excellent example. When yeah. Watergate first started getting covered, everyone was like, get out of here. Yeah. That's crazy. MKUltra. MKUltra is an even better example. Project Stargate, Quintel which Pro. was another Pro. I mean, the idea, you know, that the military or the CIA spent a really long time looking for a truth serum and that was something that they did. And then a lot of it was tied back to, to one man, Sidney Gottlieb, who was the person in the CIA who uh, both brought sex workers with LSD to San Francisco and also was involved in a lot of the very bizarre efforts to assassinate um, Castro, right? The exploding seashell, the exploding cigar. What else was supposed to explode? Any number of things. But um, 
Yeah, the diving suit. Yeah, the diving suit. Um, and so I think that that is, yeah, it can be really hard to tell when we are in the writing of history what is a conspiracy and what is a conspiracy theory. Um, and so I think what we can do is keep evolving our thoughts with the overwhelming weight of the evidence. Like there was a time when, for instance, the idea that vaccines could cause autism was treated with some amount of um, sort of cautious curiosity and respect by mainstream journalism. They said, well, maybe. Here's a new study. That could be true. And then as time went by, it became really clear that there was no basis to that and the people making that claim had a financial motivation to make it. Right. So I think that one good thing is that we rarely have to rely on one source of information, one journalist, uh, and we can sometimes not have an opinion about whether or not something is true until we know more. We can actually withhold judgment until we know more. You know, that which for you, that one for you, the, uh, the, the CIA being found out, the old OSS guys, and uh, Alan Dulles uh, being at the center of the beginning, the, the nascent deep security state that supposedly runs everything. Right, right. and there's also an idea that the so-called Dulles project was behind you know, efforts to destabilize Russian society Correct. Uh, through the use of jazz music and marijuana and promiscuous women. And there's yeah. documents that have come up that have been released that kind of document those Absolutely, things. yeah. I mean, so. one, thing, yeah, one thing that comes up for me a lot is so many outrageous things were perpetrated by the government, particularly in the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. that it really constitutes a form of trauma where we as Americans, you know, and as a world, as a global order, we are so aware that the government is capable of so many uh, unbelievable things that it can at times be hard to not sort of give sway to even our darkest suspicions. And I, I don't sort of begrudge people who do. I, in the book, I write about conspiracy theories among black Americans, which are very specific mm -hmm. and which are based entirely in things that have actually happened to black Americans in the course of American history. So to this day, a lot of black Americans do not participate in medical studies because there has been so much involuntary medical experimentation on black citizens. And so sometimes when you tell people that they don't have a right to be suspicious or a right to be hostile or a right to have these paranoias, you're talking out of your ass, right? And so, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. This is why you probably get some traction with these people because you don't, you know, you're not obviously dissing them or right. you know, talking down to them. Yeah, I mean, I can. I also think that I can tell somebody the Holocaust absolutely happened and you are full of shit, and we can still have a conversation after that. Right. It is a trickier situation, but I do think it's our responsibility sometimes when we know that something is true to say that something is true and to not... This was something that happened in Kentucky where a lot of the other journalists who we were with that day were talking to these white supremacists and not really pushing back on even the most outrageous things that they said, which I think is irresponsible. So yeah, it's a it's a balancing act though. What are we doing? One more? Okay. Um, you and then you? And then, yeah, yeah uh, well, one, one thing that we know is that there's purposeful use of atrocity propaganda. Mm -hmm. We also know, as you were saying, that there are atrocities right. that turn out to be true. Yeah. So what was particularly interesting to me was the pedagogical opportunity to teach um, critical thinking and restraint. Sure. And where, but there's no there's no framework curriculum for that. Not yet, but there's going to be. There's a lot of people who are really engaged with trying to figure out how we teach this stuff in an increasingly complicated world. And there's also a lot of examples that we can draw from. You know, right now the Syrian government is committing genocide on its own citizens and some population of far-right actors, both domestically and abroad, are saying that those atrocities are not happening. And so it is a really, like, and saying that if we talk about genocide perpetrated by the Assad regime against its citizens, that we are promoting some kind of a globalist, you know, um, new world order 
a scheming or scenario or something. And so it is a really excellent example for us to say, like, here's what we know to be true, and here is what is, here are claims that are being propagated that are not true, and how we know they are not true, and how we, how we teach people to recognize the difference. Yeah, that's an interesting one. No? Okay. Um, yeah, the point about the difficulty of weighing, yeah, uh, you know, truth versus falsehood, and sometimes, yeah. and you have to dig, yeah, and then sometimes it takes time. So this is relating to what you were talking about in KPFA, the Bernstein show. Mm -hmm. It was besides Pilger, there was a Korean American uh, source that Bernstein uses a lot. Mm. He always uses an anonymous name because you know it's he's usually a Nazi. Okay. Because of what, um, you know, death threats and things like that. But sure. He, I knew him personally. He's uh -huh. a veteran, well, a member of Veterans for Peace. Okay. And um, he compared um, what might evolve as far as our knowledge about what's going on in Hong Kong to the color revolutions, the rose, the orange, uh -huh. to what we learned later more amply about Ukraine. In other words, there are legitimate grievances, however, you know, those are often co-opted, funded, um, amplified by, you know, forces on the right. Yeah, that's and an interesting point. Right. It's not yeah, something that I have so. seen any reporting about that I find convincing by any means, but I certainly understand, again, why people want to dig into those things, why they feel a great deal of skepticism about world events, and it is certainly, again, like something that we can all sort of wait and see what unfolds, right, rather than trusting one source or one outlet, which, There's yeah. There's going to be a public discussion on the Hong Kong issue. Mm. I saw the email, but I can't remember the date and the place, but it will be public, and I think it will be really, really interesting. I was not aware that this was a, a discussion that is evolving, and I am very interested to follow yeah. it. Yeah. Hi. I would love to know anything you can share about your experience as a woman. Uh-huh. Cool, like yeah. Uh-huh. I'm interviewing a lot of men. Yeah, a lot of men out there. They love talking. <laughs> they love to just air their views. Um uh, yeah, and this is a great place to end because it actually brings us back to this chapter that I just read and to Sonny Thomas, the person who I told I was Jewish. Later in the day he wandered away and then reapproached me and said, you know, I know you're Jewish, but you are a beautiful woman and kissed my hand before I could do anything about it, um, which is actually a very, that doesn't happen to me very often. Thankfully, I would flay my hands off washing them. But um, I do think that uh, as women covering these movements, a lot of times we uh, experience a lot of condescension, a lot of sexism, a fair degree of sexual harassment. Um, but also, uh, sometimes those things can be used to our advantage because if somebody thinks I'm not very smart, uh, you know, and, you know, thinks that they're free to talk into my tape recorder all day long and I'll just sort of obligingly write down what they say and not do any reporting, that's fine. Um, I would say that women in journalism work around, yeah, a fair degree of sexism uh, pretty ably because we just kind of expect it. Um, but it's also something that comes up a lot in conspiratorial movements especially. A lot of far-right movements are fundamentally sort of retrograde in their gender roles. A lot of them talk about feminism as a tool of the Illuminati or of the world government. And it's worth recognizing that a lot of these people are united in their hatred of women. 
and their belief that women should go home and be quiet. And so, you know, whatever else we can say, whatever other pessimistic things we can say, like they are losing, they are losing that, you know, the, they are not going to reverse the um, pace of gender progress no matter how hard they try. And also a lot of them can't get girlfriends, shockingly. So that's a good thing. So we should all continue not dating those people. Um, thank you guys so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.